Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Connor Stone, here with Nikhil Aurora, my co-host. Hi, Connor. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's a cold, sunny day here in Kingston. Um, so just getting ready for the winter, I guess. Yeah, it's really starting to come in now. All right, so we you may have noticed this is a shorter episode than we've been doing. Um, those who have been following us for a while now have noticed the episode lengths creeping up higher and higher ever so slowly. Uh, so we, we decided to tackle this head on and we are going to create something new called the Ultra Fast Radio Burst series. And these will be shorter 30 minute episodes where we go in a little more specifically into a topic. Yeah. Now, uh, those of you who are up on your space news will know that on February 18th, so coming up soon now, the Perseverance rover will be landing on Mars, which is uh, very exciting. Here at the observatory, we're actually going to run a live stream panel discussion of the landing. So anyone who wants to know what's going on with the Perseverance landing, you should check out our Facebook page. We'll include a link for YouTube and you can join in and watch the landing with us. Now, um, as preparation for this landing, because we're so excited about it, we're going to be doing our first ultra-fast radio burst series about Mars exploration. So we're going to break down why is Mars interesting, what have we sent to Mars so far, and what is the reason that we're sending this new Perseverance rover to Mars. So that's going to be our first three-part series, and then we'll move on to a new series about space exploration afterwards. So um, what we're going to do now is part one, and we're going to sort of lead up on what's so interesting about Mars. So Nick, why don't you, why don't you lead off our discussion? Yeah, thank you, Connor. Yeah, so let's just start by talking about some basic facts about Mars. Um, it's the fourth planet in the solar system. Um, and one of the most amazing things about Mars is when, even when you look at it in the sky, and by the way, if you're around in and around Kingston right now, you can look up and see Mars on a clear night in the winter. So if you look at it in the sky, it appears red. And so it's been dubbed the red planet. And there's a reason for that. And I think it's an interesting reason. And sort of what initially motivates are all of these sort of probes and missions to Mars. And that's because Martian soil seems to have a lot of oxygen, you know, iron that has rusted. Um, and so, as you can imagine, when you rust any metal at your home, it gets slightly a red color. And that's what gives Mars the red color. But there's an interesting thing behind this rusting, and that is that you need oxygen for metals to rust. And that already points us to why Mars is just such an interesting 
object to us humans, it's because there might have been oxygen on Mars at one point in time. And that sort of then goes on with the question. I think in a majority of our fast radio burst, uh, podcasts, we have talked about aliens once or twice, I guess. Um, and so I'm <laughs> aliens gonna, are always interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to continue this tradition. Absolutely. And so this presence of oxygen or rusting of iron in Martian soil just directly leads you to think, what if there was life on Mars? Or is there currently life on Mars? And that's been kind of the question that scientists have been trying to answer one way or another. And so, and and there's a reason for that. And that is because Mars is very, very similar to Earth. Um, It's a day on Mars is only 24 hours, 24 and a half hours compared to 24 hours on Earth. A year is a little bit longer. It takes 687 Earth days for Mars to complete one orbit around the around the sun. Uh, most of its um, atmosphere consists of a lot of carbon dioxide and water vapor. Even though it has a very thin atmosphere, that's what is the sort of composition of it. And here's a fun fact. I think because Mars is much smaller than Earth, it has, not I think it is, much smaller than Earth. It has a lower gravity, which means, let's say, if you weigh 100 kgs on Earth, you go to Mars, you only weigh about 38, 40 kgs. And that really surprised me when I learned about that, too, because I sort of grew up with everyone saying Mars is the sister planet to Earth. And so I thought, like, well, if we could just fix that atmosphere, everything would be basically (laughs) the same. But you weigh less than half what you would on Earth. Yeah. So gravity is a different thing on Mars, for sure. I really want to see Olympics on (laughs) Mars someday. A lot of records will be straight up broken, if if I can say that. But, but that's an important point that you put forward, Connor, because um, life in a low-gravity environment would look very different to what it looks here on Earth. And so as, as far as the sister planet sort of thought comes in, in reality, when you match stats for stats for planets, Venus seems to be the closest to Earth. But with, with the way we have done observations of Mars, it, it really truly does look like in, in philosophy of the fact that there is life on Earth, Mars seems to be the sister planet. Um, yeah. And also... The- well, yeah, Venus is close to Earth in size, and it does have a nice, a- nice thick atmosphere. Unfortunately, it's not a nice atmosphere. Right. It's a very aggressive, <laughs> acidic atmosphere, which we talked about in uh, our first episode exactly. of Fast Radio Bursts, how like aggressive the environment is on Venus. So Mars seems like a safer choice, even with the lower gravity. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, Yeah. And so the temperatures on Mars are not that sort of hostile either. Um, A good day on Mars would be a good temperature, 35 degrees Celsius, which is maybe you go to Greece or Mexico for a beach vacation and you get that. And, And the colder aspects is minus 62. And I must say, lower temperatures have been recorded on Earth um, for in, in cold. So it seems like even temperature-wise, um, Mars seems to be very close to what, what Earth is. I mean, minus 62 to 35 seems manageable, maybe not comfortable. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not going to be comfortable, but it's definitely manageable for sure. And, and that's always had us wondering um, whether or not there might be life on Mars. Maybe before we go into the real um, sort of depth of 
the motivation of exploring Mars so much, we should really talk about one of my coolest aspects of Mars, and and that is um, Olympus Mons. Um, it is a mountain on Mars, and it is the largest mountain in our solar system. So Mount Everest is about eight kilometers in altitude. Um, Olympus Mons is 21 kilometers high, which is very large. So, so it's almost three m- Mount Everest's stacked on top of each other. Yep. In, in sort of surface area, it's about the size of France. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> and so people have studied uh, Mount Olympus uh, or Olympus Mons um, to, I mean, the first one, which we're going to talk about in the next episode, the first sort of flyby machine, uh, mission, which was Mariner 9, and then to Viking, which landed near Olympus Mons. And they found that it was a volcano, which is, I think, a cool thing as well. So it used to be a volcano, but now it's just a dead mound. So that seems pretty interesting to me. Um, Yeah, so now let's really move on to the motivations as to why um, Mars seems to be so interesting. And I think the biggest one is the fact that it's so close to us. Um, and then you can move on and continue. And, and there have been arguments made, arguments made all the way going back to 1500 years. Um, and these arguments were initially sort of rooted in in religion because that's how the world was back then. Um, but we have sort of now evolved. But back then the argument was if humans worship God and God is meant to be worshipped there and there are planets that we see in the sky, then all of those planets should have life on it because it's God what needs to be worshipped. And that sort of, this is called the principle of plenitude, um, which is what sort of motivated us looking for life out them because planets without life seem, back then, seemed a little... Like a waste. Exactly, a waste, a useless thing. And so that sort of motivated (laughs) our, our sort of idea to explore Mars and even other planets for for life. Now, of course, we don't do it because because of God. We've sort of couched our ideology more in statistics, which is the the classical Fermi paradox, which says, let's say our sun has eight planets around it, which seems to be a little large, uh, but let's say every star has at least one planet, one or two planets around it. There are about 10 billion, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. You're looking at billions of hundreds of billions of planets and some of them have to have life. We like statistically, it does not make sense for one out of a hundred billion planet to have life. And that sort of has continued our research into Mars, into exoplanets, studying planets across other stars to really understand their atmosphere, what they're made of, basically um, try and look for what we call the common aspects of life here on Earth, which is just basic elements such as hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, which is basically what we're made of, and also water because we seem to be needing a lot of that to live as well. That sort of leads us to just a general research about why we need to look for life on other planets. Um, Mars, as I said, is just another rocky planet very similar to Earth. It has ice caps, just like the Earth does with the North Pole and the South Pole. Uh, while it's a little smaller, it still is very close. And that's why I think we need to have um, some sort of in-deep research into Mars to figure out whether there was life or there is life today. Yeah. So there's lots of like baseline reasons to suspect something might be up with Mars. Maybe something 
in its past, considering it's not exactly the most hospitable place anymore, but even just finding uh, evidence of past life would be incredible. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything eking out in existence today, this would really be the discovery of the millennium. Oh, absolutely. I think this would be the discovery of humanity if, if, if I can go that, be that bold and go that far. Because finding life on other planets just changes how we've been living up until now on Earth, which is pretty big. All right. So we've, we've established because of the rust, people have known for a long time that there must be and have been oxygen on Mars. We've established that it's at least... Um, survivable. It's got a thinner atmosphere, a bit of a wider temperature range than Earth, and a little bit less gravity. But for the most part, one could envision that life might live there. So I think that's a good place to go for our first break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some of the original missions to Mars that started to answer these questions that we had from our distant observations. Hello, I am just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. There will also be links to all of our online channels in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. Also, don't forget the McDonald Institute the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap programs are all very enthusiastic about bringing the universe down to Earth. Links to these online programs will be available in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to Mars. And welcome back. So now we're going to talk about some of the OG missions to Mars, some of the... um, the first ones that really laid the framework for what was to come later and sort of instigated all of the excitement that we have for Mars as such an interesting exoplanet to study, or not exoplanet, uh, planet to study. Yeah. I mean, it's, ex- yeah, no, a planet to study for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get started, Connor. It's, 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 it's an exciting journey that we're taking over the next three episodes, and I'm really excited to talk about this. Okay, so um, let's let's just first do just a brief thirty-five thousand feet kind of survey, as in like just from that high up, just an overarching survey of how many orbiters, landers, satellites have been sent to Mars, and and the number is is very surprising. At least when I found this out, it's twenty-two. We've had twenty-two attempts to go to Mars in some way or another. Not human, uh, like not manned missions, but just to try and understand what's going on on Mars. And so this includes a combination of just different orbiters, different flyby missions, landers, rovers, and Percy is, of course, included in that, for sure. Um, And one of them is going to even be, it's going to go happen in 2026, and that's included in this 2022. Uh, Before we go further, though, uh, I should probably spell out, you just said Percy, and um, we... (laughs) When you when you work with is the Perseverance rover enough, Perseverance becomes too long to say, and so Nick has started calling it Percy, uh, which I think a lot of other people do as well. Yeah, it's it's motivated by NASA. That's what they call it at NASA as well. Okay, so 
Percy is the rover that will be landing on February 18th. Yes, Percy. So Perseverance is now Percy for us going forward. Anyway, so yeah, there, there have been quite a few um, missions to Mars. And I think there's one planned for 2026, which is supposed to bring back samples from Mars, which I find very exciting as well. And so, yeah, we're going to look at some of the first missions that happened. But before um, I talk about that, I really want people to know about this one tool that exists on NASA's website. It's called Mars Go. And you should really look it up if you have the chance to. And it gives you a live view of Mars and what different missions, orbiters, landers are active on Mars right now and where exactly they are on Mars or around Mars. And I thought... That's a very cool thing that NASA has provided us. So I'm on the website right now, and we're going to put this in show notes as well. And I can really see where landers such as or rovers such as Curiosity are on Mars, and whether it's daytime for Curiosity or not, and where InSight is, and other Mars orbiters like the European Space Agency's Gas Orbiter, which is currently on the North Pole. I'm looking at. All right. So Mars Go seems pretty cool, but you're you're teasing us with the future <laughs> rovers. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about the original ones. Yes, absolutely. So it all started in um, 1976, if I'm not wrong. Oh, that's when we landed on Mars. It actually first started in 1964. Um, and maybe one thing that needs to be noted over here is that the missions to Mars were almost working in parallel to the moon landing. Um, for NASA. So 1969 was the first time Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And the first time we had a flyby to Mars was in 1964. Um, So these missions were almost working in parallel. And there was a push within science, of course, backed by the Cold War to some extent, to understand the rocky planets in our solar system. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. And so there was a series of um, flyby orbiters sent out specifically called the Mariner series. And Mariner 3 and 4 were sent out to Mars to just take pictures from space to Mars. Unfortunately, Mariner 3 did not make it, but Mariner 4 actually did make it. It was supposed to be there for eight months, but it worked much past eight months and actually lasted three years. And in those three years, it was able to take the first ever close-up pictures of Mars um, to really show the fact that I think Mariner 4 gives us a little lesson about Mars missions is either they're like Mariner 3 and they crash and burn or Mariner 4 and they go way past their expected lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be kind of a theme throughout this um, podcast series where we're going to see that a particular rover was planned for a certain amount and it did way past it or it just never started. So, yes, absolutely. So what did the Mariner missions actually do once they, or the one that worked, what did it do once it got there? It it took close-up pictures of Mars and it actually showed, well, it showed a few things, but the most important one was that Mars, just like Moon, has craters as well, um, which I guess wasn't unexpected, particularly because there's, there's a whole asteroid belt that was known of. And of course, Mars being closer to the asteroid belt would get, would interact with it quite a bit. But that sort of allowed us to really study the Martian surface and one, figure out where we can land if we ever wanted to send a lander, which is what we're going to talk about soon um, because of these pictures. And second thing, um, the ice caps that I was pointing about, um, those were also sort of discovered by Martian 4. 
imaging. It sort of showed that Martian evenings are really chill and it saw evidence of frost. Um, yeah, and so given the fact, as I pointed out, Martian 4 was really only supposed to stay there for eight odd months, but it stayed there for three years. And so there was a sister um, satellite sent to Venus, which um, was Mar Mariner 5, and both of them actually worked together to study solar wind patterns on both planets and also sort of map out the solar system in a very coordinated way. So just sort of trying to understand distances in the solar system was both Mariner 5 and Mariner 4. Um, and then we continue on to Mariner, still in the Mariner series. 6 and 7 also went to Mars and took pictures as well. Um, then 8 and 9 also went to Mars. 8, unfortunately, did not make it. But Mariner 9 became the first ever um, mission to map out the full Martian surface. So it was still an orbiter, but it orbit, orbited for about a year around Mars. And it was able to 100% map out the full surface of Mars, which is very, very important. Those maps would probably also be really helpful for finding a good place to land on Mars. Because you don't want to land on a pointy rock and break, <laughs> and break yes. your machine. Absolutely. Um, so when did when did we take advantage of this data and actually get to land on Mars? Yeah, very quickly after that. So 1971 was Mariner 9, when it, and it took a year to map out everything. And then 1976 were the Viking 1 and 2 series, which went to Mars and actually landed on Mars. Um, there was later on, there was a little failure with Viking 1. Um, is it Viking 1 or Viking... Sorry, Viking 2 lander. There was a small failure with it. But Viking 1 landed perfectly and actually just continued to study um, the Martian surface. And so there, there were a few interesting things that happened with Viking 1 and 2. Um, the first one was Viking 2 had what is called a seismometer on it. So it was able to measure sort of geological activities of Mars and it found sort of signatures of earthquake. Unfortunately... It could only find just one signature before sort of the seismic instrument broke down, but it was able to sort of detect some sort of event. Then there were three uh, experiments on both the Viking uh, landers, which wanted to study the composition of the Martian atmosphere and soil to look for um, basically either presence or any evidence of previous or previous or past, no, previous and present uh, microorganism life. Um, and... There was some sort of hint from these that there might be some biological uh, activity on Mars, but this was later proven to be wrong. Um, and it was later proven that these sort of biological signatures that Viking 2 found were just because of the solar radiation and how the solar radiation actually interacts with the Martian soil to change its chemistry. Um, but yeah. That is one way that Mars differs from Earth. Because it doesn't have quite the same magnetic field, you do get more cosmic radiation, which are these high-energy particles that can really mess with your electronics if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but but it it still actually allowed us to just motivate this exploration to Mars series because we just saw a hint of biological evidence, even if it was later proven to be wrong. But it was just like, what if? And that sort of allowed us to continue going. And so then we kept sending flyby missions or orbiters to Mars, finally going to 1997 um, to what is called the Sojourner Pathfinder, um, which was the first ever rover to Mars. Now, there's a difference between a lander and a rover. 
a lander, once it lands, it stays where it is, whereas a rover, as the name suggests, is able to move around. And so this was the first time we actually put a vehicle on Mars to study Mars. And there are a couple of interesting things about Sojourner. Um, one of them is how it was actually powering itself. And this was the same thing. It, it was actually discovered through the Viking lander, which was that because Mars has just about the same daytime as Earth, we could not always continue to use solar panel. And so uh, both Viking lander and Sojourner actually had a plutonium source within them, which created nuclear activity to power the equipment on board for both of them, which I think is very cool. I think what we're going to see throughout this series is not only a better understanding of Mars, but sort of innovation and engineering in how to land power and move things around in hostile environment. And so maybe we should uh, say a note about how Viking and Sojourner made it to the Martian surface. What sort of techniques for landing did they use? Um, So Sojourner used for the first time ever was able to actually enter the atmosphere, engage a parachute to slow down its descent, and then essentially just surrounded itself with airbags and just bounced on Mars for a while until settling down. And that's how Sojourner was able to land on Mars. And once it did, then it actually got rid of those airbags and started to work. Sounds like a bumpy landing, but <laughs> kind of creative. Yeah, it, it is very creative. It was at, at the time, of course, now we do it differently and we're going to talk about it when we start talking about spirit, opportunity, and curiosity. Um, but Sojourner, actually, this was a very, very creative way to do it, short of actually putting um, thrusters to sort of fight the descent. But yeah, and then Sojourner had quite a few um, equipments on board, which actually allowed it to prove one of the most important things um, that all of us in the scientific community were looking for. And that was Mars at one point of time had liquid water and it was warm with actually a thicker atmosphere than it has today. And that's very, very important to support life and which, which sort of now is, was back then an exciting thing, but fueled all of these further events that are further missions that have been going on too much. Um, apart from that, it, it actually also found a few other interesting things as well, um, such as the fact that Martian dust was magnetic. I guess that makes a lot of sense because of the fact that, as I talked about it, in, in a, not in an earlier episode, as I talked about earlier, how Martian soil is red because of the high iron content. And so finding the fact that um, Martian dust was magnetic allowed it for the proof that it actually does have quite a bit of iron um they sometimes have to take a little bit of an indirect route to prove these things exactly you can't really send a whole chemistry lab to mars you have to really send something very specific that's as light as possible because it's it's quite expensive for every kilogram that you (laughs) want to put on mars yeah absolutely so yeah you can't just directly test for iron you test for magnetism, yeah. which is clever. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and the the presence of that magnetism actually sort of suggested that Mars at one point of time had an active water cycle, which means that water actually did not just stay, it was on Mars, it was actually flowing around on Mars, which is also a very interesting thing because um, um, we have rivers flowing and oceans here on Earth. And if that is the case, then... Mars was definitely at one point in time a very similar Earth. 
And so how did Sojourner figure out that there must have been flowing water on Mars? What, what did they use to, to sort of make that discovery? Well, so basically what it studied was it had it was studying the soil of Mars and it realized that all of this iron could have actually come from the crust. So it was only small evidence that it might have an active water cycle, but it realized that some of the iron that is on the Martian soil right now might have actually come from deeper in the crust. And that can only happen when there's something moving, interacting with the crust and it can't be air. Therefore, it has to be water, which was which could have sort of just pulled out some of the material from um, deeper in the crust and left it out on the surface. And so that's... They also managed to uh, take pictures of some of the rocks, right? Yeah. And see that they were rounded. And you'll, you, get, you get this sort of rounded shape for the rocks by having them moving around in yeah. flowing water. Absolutely, yeah. So the friction of water will round out Mars as well, uh, for sure. So it was able to... It had three cameras on it. And it was able to take picture and proof. Sort of rounded rock might have also might also decayed water movement. Um, All right, so I th- I think that we should end our first ultra fast radio burst there. We've sort of gone through some of the reasoning why everyone was interested in Mars before we had ever even gone there. With all that rust, it seemed like there must have been a lot of oxygen at some point, and then. Our first missions to Mars, a mix of very successful and not so successful attempts to get to Mars. Mars is notably a tricky planet to get to. But uh, once they got there, they found some really exciting evidence that there may have once been uh, liquid water moving around on the surface of Mars, which certainly um, makes one excited for what we might learn with future rovers. So we're, we're going to go on to that for the next episode of this series. And we're going to talk about what some of the more modern rovers have discovered about Mars. Yeah. And with that, I think uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Birth. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.